Justice Union Now. This week we continue with the Just Vote, our focus this semester. Our guest is Robert Peach Owens. He is founder and CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, a nonpartisan polling organization that focuses on, quote, political issues as they relate to religious values. In 2016, he published The End of White Christian America, and in July released White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. your eyeballs on our Facebook page in order to keep abreast of all the live content Dean Douglas and others will be cooking up for our audiovisual edification this semester. Shout out to the team who keeps that page ever teeming with spicy new morsels, a cornucopia of opportunities to notice and invent new possibilities. Good afternoon. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Thank you for joining us in another of our conversations on Just Vote, as we look toward the November 3rd elections and beyond. I am so happy and privileged to have joining me today in this conversation, Mr. Robbie P. Jones, a friend and colleague but most importantly, one of the leading voices and scholars when it comes to helping us to understand the changing cultural and political landscape in this country and the role of religion in that changing landscape. He has conducted some of the most significant research and gathered the most telling data when it comes to the implications of faith when it, in relationship to some of the most pressing issues of our time such as race, and when it comes to the vote. Robert P. Jones is CEO and founder of the Public Religion Research Institution, formerly known as PPRI, also known as PPRI. And he is author of one of the most important and prescient books for our time, and that is White Too Long, the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. Ravi, thank you for taking the time to be a part of this conversation with me. No, I'm always happy to talk to you. Um, so thanks for having me. Well, let's jump right in because yeah. there is a lot to cover. And I want to start with what I find to be one of your most insightful yet provocative uh, statements that we find in your book, White Too Long, and that is this. You said, if you were recruiting for a white supremacist cause on a Sunday morning, you likely would have more success hanging out in the parking lot of an average white Christian church, evangelical Protestant, mainline Protestant, or Catholic, than approaching white sitting out services at the local coffee shop. Now that's quite an indictment of Christianity. What's going on here? Uh, well, it's such a heartbreaking, you know, sentence uh, that to write. Really, I, mean, I remember I was uh, looking at that sentence on the screen uh, when I wrote it and realizing that that was actually the accurate conclusion uh, from the data that I that I had sitting before me. I'll say a little bit more about that, you know, and, and what, what I think 
so the book has kind of three components. It's kind of got a memoir component, a kind of history component, and then a social science component where I'm looking at contemporary public opinion data. Um, and this comes out of that piece. Um, when I'm looking at contemporary attitudes among white Christians, um, that I found um, just this consistent pattern in question after question, survey after survey of this gap um, where white Christians uh, were uh, very consistently holding more racist attitudes than whites who were not Christian. Um, so just to give you a couple of examples, um, you know, kind of make this concrete on, on the issue that is sitting so heavily with us um, you know, right now, the killing of African-American men by police. We have a survey question we've been asking for a number of years um, since 2015, actually, um, on this question. And what we find is that uh, white Christians, uh, those who identify as Christian, are about twice as likely as whites who are religiously unaffiliated to say that these are just isolated incidents that have nothing to do with one another, rather than part of a pattern of how police treat African-Americans. And, and I can multiply this, and in fact, I do in the book across 15 different questions. So it's not just this one issue, but it's essentially anything that gets to systemic racism um, in the country um, that you see effectively that Christianity, white Christianity um, effectively puts moral blinders um, on white Christians and, and really renders uh, this invisible. Uh, to them. And even when I test for all kinds of other explanations, right, to see, well, maybe it's partisanship, maybe it's not religion, maybe it's partisanship, maybe it's education, maybe it's gender, maybe it's region. Uh, but I actually went through and actually tried to break the model that was showing this relationship by putting in all these other controls, even controlling for all these other possible alternative explanations. Uh, even when you put those controls in, this independent relationship between holding more racist uh, attitudes and identifying as a white Christian hold up. And that relationship does not exist among whites who are religiously unaffiliated. So it really is Christian identity that is doing the work uh, here and that is kind of making this connection between uh, higher racist attitudes and white Christian identity. Yeah, this is what I find to be one of the most unsettling uh, yet insightful uh, aspects of your research here, this very thorough research that, you know, it's with this white Christian identity that not simply at not being able to recognize systemic racism and being more racist, that even in terms of overall racial attitudes, that unaffiliated white uh, uh, persons seem to trend closer toward people of color in racial attitudes and in their attitudes in terms of racial injustice in the society than do white Christians. And so in yeah. that regard, it's no surprise then, or we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, first, let me hit this matter of policing, where we see, and, and, and I've heard you speak about uh, the website and all of the money that was raised, right, in support of uh, the young man who killed protesters uh, out in Wisconsin, that would seem to be commensurate by a, a white Christian group. That would be compatible or commensurate with your, the data uh, that you found that it seems that white Christians are overwhelmingly supportive of blue lives mattering as opposed to black lives mattering. Can you speak to that anymore? Yeah. 
No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think we're seeing this play out right right before our eyes. You know, this 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 um, this really a, a kind of moral blindness, I, I think, um, towards systemic racism. So, what do you see, right, when you look at what's happening in the country? Do you see protests for justice, or do you see rioting and looting? Um, what do you see? Do you see a police officer uh, defending himself, or do you see someone getting shot in the back seven times uh, when they're unarmed? Um, you know, what do you see when you see someone like uh, Cal Rittenhouse, who sh who answered a white supremacist malicious call to leave his home state, drive across the state lines uh, to Kenosha, and then ends up, ends up killing uh, two people, um, you know, there. Do you see him acting in self-defense or do you see someone acting, uh, you know, out of, uh, out of um, a sense of white supremacy? Do you see law and order um, as the biggest problem in the country or do you see racial injustice as the biggest problem in the country. And those are all, I think those fault lines are all right there, you know, and that one of the, I think, heartbreaking things, uh, you know, if you, if you ask people, like, what work does Christianity do uh, with whites? Does it make them less racist? I'm, I mean, I think almost all white Christians would say yes, right? It, may, it should make them less racist. Um, but I think the other, their piece I didn't even mention is, um, you know, when we, even when we looked at church attendance uh, on, on this front, uh, along to answer that question, um, does does maybe these people are just Christian in name only, right? That they just claim to be Christian, but they're not really. They haven't been formed in Christian discipleship. They haven't listened to a lot of sermons. Um, but what is I, I think is still astonishing is that we found like at best, church attendance makes no difference um, in this among white Christians. Uh, so those who attend more frequently and those who attend less frequently, this relationship between holding racist attitudes and identifying as a white Christian remains the same. But if we look at, particularly at white evangelicals, right? The group that I grew up in, this kind of uh, group that I grew up in, uh, it, we find actually that attending church more frequently makes things worse in terms of racial attitudes, that, uh, that those who attend more frequently, uh, that that relationship between holding racist attitudes and uh, identifying as white Christians is actually stronger among those who attend more frequently and, and those who attend less frequently. And what's uh, I think also notable is that um, if you only ask about uh, whether people feel warmly toward African-Americans, these two things are simultaneously true for white evangelicals. They simultaneously will say they feel much more warmly than the general population does toward African-Americans. And if you look at attendance on that measure, it actually makes things, you, it, you get warmer feelings for people who attend more often. And at the same time, they hold more racist attitudes uh, and those who attend more frequently actually hold higher racist attitudes and those. So these two things are true at the same time. And the only thing I think we can say about this from, you know, from my perch is that there is this like deep self-deception among white Christians about where they really are um, on, on issues of race in this country. And I think one of my hopes is that this moment will create such a cognitive dissonance uh, among white Christians that it will just be untenable uh, to, to try to hold on to the both of these things at the same time. Yeah, well, let's let's dig in get to that just uh, a little bit further. This kind of notion of deep uh, self-deception. There clearly seems to be something toxic that makes Christianity toxic, or maybe whiteness more toxic when these two things come together. And yeah. you know, even as you talk about, you see it uh, even more deeply within evangelical. Christianity, but what's also very telling uh, in your work and in the data, and we can even see in 
through the last election that it's not simply about being a fundamentalist evangelical Protestant. That's right. That this holds across the board for uh, white Christians. So what is it, right, about in the Christian theological architecture that allows for this toxic combination of whiteness and Christianity. It almost leads us to believe, I remember Malcolm X said once that you can't be black and Christian, but maybe you can't mm. be white and Christian and all, not be white and Christian. Mm. What's, what, what are we to think of this? What's going on here, Robbie? What's, in, what's it about Christianity that makes it so lethal when it comes together with whiteness? Or vice versa. Yeah, you know, I, I think we've got a clue um, with uh, from Frederick Douglass, like way, way back, you know, um, and, and from his first autobiography. Um, I think what's often like skipped over um, and not paid enough attention to is he has an entire appendix at the end of his first autobiography that just excoriates white Christianity for the deep hypocrisy of kind of preaching virtue on the one hand uh, and uh, upholding the cruelty of slavery on the other. And he has this, you know, what again, I felt um, just so uh, disturbed by when I first read it. Um, uh, and again, I, I should say, like, look, I've got a PhD in religion, and it wasn't until I started working on this book that I, I reread the autobiography, and it really sunk into me what he was saying about white Christianity um, there. And, and what, he, what he basically said is that it was his experience and the experience of most people that he knew who had been enslaved that to be, um, uh, to have an, a slave, to have an owner who was Christian was far worse than to have an owner who was not, right? And so exactly what you're saying, this kind of coming together of white supremacy and Christianity was actually more lethal than just white supremacy on its own. Uh, in fact, he, he put it like so starkly, he said, look, aside from being enslaved, the worst calamity I could imagine befalling myself would to be owned by a Christian uh, slave master. Like that was the next to being enslaved itself. That was the next worst thing he could imagine. Um, and, and he explained that there was this kind of psychological thing that happened um, that whereas before, um, he as he described it, uh, there was like just some basic humanity that might curb the cruelty um, uh, among whites. But once it got baptized with Christian theology, that basic humanity got short-circuited because it now had a just a Christian justification, right? You could quote uh, chapter and verse, right? On, uh, on uh, kind of punishing slaves, on treating them cruelly, like you could, you know, and, and, and people did. Uh, and, and I think that that's, a, that's like an insight for us that it, that it in fact short circuits in some ways, a kind of basic humanity. Um, and that's a sort of damning thing to say, right? That there's a way in which Christian theology in this way has, has really, um, I mean, Martin Luther King said very similar thing, right? He talked about, like, who are these white Christians in the midst of all these calls for justice who are sitting safely behind the, their anesthetizing stained glass windows in a letter from Birmingham jail? That's right. And that's exactly right. And one of the things, even as you have, uh, your data clearly shows this inability uh, to recognize, or at least to acknowledge systemic racism. And as you talk about this sort of holding uh, two things at once that uh, uh, evangelicals can feel more warmly uh, toward uh, African-Americans, yet at the same time, uh, 
display this sort of level of hatred or white supremacy. There's something, is there not, in particularly in this evangelical Protestant tradition, but it's a part of Christian architectures, theological architecture as well, that this focus on the individual, this focus on individual piety, right? This focus on individual virtue and morality. And so that one can focus on that and yeah. talk about being uh, individually uh, saved and pure and virtuous. And that does not allow one then to make that leap. We can talk about individual sin and not see yeah. the sort of social sin. And so you have an excuse almost that becomes almost a blind spot. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll make this really, really personal. I mean, it was, you know, once I, when, when I was really working on the book and one of the things I was doing is thinking back about my own upbringing and childhood. And, you know, like I was, I was at church all the time as a kid. I mean, I was at, I was at church like five times a week, all the way through my adolescence. I was in the youth group, all of that. And I, you know, when I, I, I realized I not once heard a sermon about civil rights, about, uh, uh, you know, social justice and, and racial inequality uh, about the role of white churches in resisting, uh, you know, uh, uh, and supporting segregation uh, and, and resisting call, uh, uh, black calls for equality. I, not once did I hear anything about that. Now, how can that be, right? I mean, it, it, and I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi in the 70s and 80s, um, right? Um, and so it, it, it speaks to the power of it. So that, but, but what I did hear every, every sermon, every service, was about a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what I heard every week, right. right? And what that did is it created kind of the beginning and the end of religion was about this individualistic personal relationship with Jesus. And as long as I had this kind of interior sense of security uh, that things were good between me, Jesus, and God in this very individualistic way, everything else gets sort of screened out as the proper realm of religion and, and Christianity. Uh, so it does kind of have this, uh, it really does truncate your, your moral vision um, in, in a way, and, and you become short-sighted. Uh, and and it, I, I think that is one of the biggest things we're struggling with. And, and while it's more evident, I think, in, in white evangelical uh, circles, it's worth noting, right, my, my, you know, uh, my denomination became the dominant expression of, uh, it was the largest Protestant denomination in the country by the middle of the 20th century, right? It, is, it became the dominant uh, expression of white Christianity um, in the country, and you know, United Methodists who are also heavily in the South, um, and even Episcopalians, like it's worth remembering, right? Um, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, they were Episcopalians, right? I mean, it is not Beckwith uh, who, who bombed the uh, church, right? Yeah, right, right. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, uh, so it's not outside. It's not just an evangelical issue here, and I think that's what the the current data shows us is that. It, it, it very easily escaped, you know, the bounds of kind of white evangelicalism in the South. And it, it is very much with white Christian churches, both Protestant and Catholic. So before we turn to Christians and the vote, let me ask you, you did, you were born and raised in the Southern Baptist tradition. And just as you've articulated and laid bare in your book, uh, this was a tradition very much uh, if not explicitly, at least gives cover by being silent uh, to issues of uh, racial injustice, uh, et cetera. A tradition that uh, was a part of what you call sort of a lost cause uh, religion in support of Confederate uh, monuments and, uh, and the Confederacy. So, Ravi, how, what was it 
that allowed you to, to see and to feel the disconnect and uh, to begin to get on a different, let, let's, let's say a conversion experience away from mm. that. What was the catalyst for change for you? How, how did you grow? How did you change? Um, well, you know, I think it's a really long journey. You know, like I said, I, I, it, it was not until my 20s in seminary that I even like, knew this Genesis story of the Southern Baptist Convention, right? So that's my early adulthood when I, and it was definitely unsettling for me, but I didn't really know what to do with it, frankly, um, in that setting. So it just kind of sat back there. As, and again, kind of creating some kind of cognitive distance. It would come forward, it would recede. Um, you know, so I think it's just been like this kind of experience of stumbling through, you know, um, but I, I think for me, um, honestly, it's really been the last five years um, that have been really, uh, that have brought these things to the fore. And, and really, so it was, you know, the, the killing of African-American worshipers in Charleston by Dylan Roof and realizing that Dylan Roof was a baptized Lutheran, right? An ELC Lutheran and a member of a church in good standing. And when I really started digging into it, very much saw his white Christian identity was very compatible and actually undergirded his white supremacist manifesto that he that he was writing. You know, even even as he after he'd been arrested and was in prison, um, Charlottesville, um, I think, uh, also uh, was a, a kind of turning point. In fact, I started writing the book in earnest after Charlottesville. Um, it was just something I, I felt. But you know, I think my parents played a role. They grew up in Jim Crow, Macon, Georgia. Um, but I, I think they they played a, a role in not passing on that overt, uh, you know, white supremacy there and, and even calling out my grandparents in front of me, you know, when they would kind of come forward with just stuff that pe white people, white Christians would just say um, that were just outright racist. Um, and, 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 you know, I think put a little bit of a enough of a barrier there that it gave me enough critical distance to leverage later. Right. Even if it didn't quite all register. Um, at the time. Uh, but, but one just short thing I'll say is that um, uh, at the beginning of writing the book um, after Charlottesville, I, I, and this is maybe helpful for, for others, but one of the things that helped me was actually just to sit down and journal um, a little bit. And, and, and the only question I had in front of, my, in front of me as someone you know, grew up in this kind of white evangelical world was, where does race show up for me in my memory? Right? That's a question only a white person can really ask or has the luxury of asking that question, right? But but the, the honest truth is when I first asked myself that question, nothing came to mind. I had to sit with it a little bit, right? And that's the kind of privilege of, you know, being part of the dominant, you know, uh, racial group. Uh, but once I sat with it and just, you know, it was sort of like I, there was like one little thread. And like once I started pulling on that thread, it started unraveling other things. And then other, you know, story would come and a story would come. And then I think it was just telling stories with other people in my circles, with my family, um, that actually generated other stories. I think that actually that kind of organic storytelling, truth telling really is one of the things I think that white Christian you know, churches can do is just begin by just having some circles of telling the truth and trying to come to a, a kind of more honest view of, of our own of our own history as a way of kind of awakening ourselves to responsibility in the present. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And I think uh, and I was going to say one thing that stands out in that is telling the truth. It's, I'm reminded of 
what James Baldwin says. And, you know, and he says, if we're going to get beyond this, that America has to learn to tell the truth. And so I'm struck with how sort of one of the uh, similar experiences for you was learning the truth of the Southern Baptist tradition, yeah. which you were part, and then telling your own story and, tell, and finding your own truth. Baldwin says that, uh, white people have to ask themselves the question of what is the price of the ticket uh, mm -hmm. for being white in America? And then going back and tracing that story and telling that story and that truth about when I became white. And that's your sort of racial reckoning, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, uh, as you say, remembering the first time that uh, you thought about race. Uh, and so, and that's what Baldwin says, the first step is that white people have to go back and retrace the steps of when it was uh, that I became white. And that can be the beginning of change. Let's make a little turn here. We're, come, we're two months or so away from a significant election coming up. A lot of the work that uh, you have done and research and that uh, PRRI has done has been about uh, the Christian vote. Uh, if you will, and the election. Uh, what, what role should the church, first of all, play on the public square when it comes to the vote? And, uh, and I'll ask that together with, what is it about, what can we expect from the Christian vote? <laughs> Well, I think those are two really different questions, right? What should we see and what are we seeing? Um, uh, I think unfortunately really different. Like what I, I'll, I'll just say quickly about the should question, you know, what, what I would hope we would see is again, the church kind of opening up the aperture for people's moral vision and moral imagination. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and I, you know, and, and instead of, um, and for white Christian churches, I think, Saying, saying seriously, I think, especially in election cycles, white Christians are so quickly, are so quick, I think, to say the Bible teaches, this is the, the biblical worldview demands, fill in the blank, right? Um, and I, I would say this, like, having got it so damn wrong <laughs> on issues of race, you know, I, I, it would be so great, right, if white Christians could take just a minute um, to say, yeah, all right, you know what, we got it so wrong. Um, and to have enough humility, I think, and, and to have that be part of their job, right, is to say, we're going to help uh, engender a kind of empathetic humility um, in mm -hmm. our people, in our congregations. And if nothing else, right, uh, we will say this, um, if we see our, our African-American brothers and sisters in pain, in anguish, and in anger, over, over what they're telling us is injustice. Even if we don't see it, even if we don't understand it, we would not dismiss it, right? Mm -hmm. We would sit with it um, long enough to see if we can muster enough empathy to get beyond our own kind of vision. Um, I, I would love to see that be the role, right? That white Christian churches play um, in our current moment um, uh, that, that, we're, that we're having. Um, unfortunately, I think what, what we see Right, is that, and I, and I think, uh, you know, I think way back to Niebuhr, right, the social sources of denominationalism and this kind of indictment of um, kind of the way that race is, you know, he called it the kind of the caste system, right, um, uh, um, uh, in, in the Christian churches. And we're largely still there, right? And, and we're, we have allowed, I think, um, 
kind of race and religion to be used as political tools. Um, and and there, I think there's no more damning, uh, I think, uh, insight to that, to just look at the composition of our two political parties, right? We have a Republican party today that is two thirds white and Christian, and a Democratic party that is one third white and Christian, right? And how do we get to those two things? Um, the, the, the story and the, and the fuel, the propulsion that gets us there are divergent reactions to the civil rights movement in the mid-1960s, right? It's not abortion. It's not same-sex marriage. Uh, it's not other kinds of culture war issues. It really is over uh, two divergent reactions to the civil rights movement because we used to talk about the solid uh, uh, Democrats out. Whites, right, whites were in the Democratic Party until the party of civil rights, right? And then what we have is white Christian flight from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And so now what we have, right, is this, um, these two parties that are uh, further apart than ever. And part of what's keeping them apart is, is this, that race, religion, and partisanship are all bound together in this really toxic way, right? And, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, we, we look at the same events and, and see completely different things. That's right. And see different things. It's just, you know, to hear you speak of this sort of toxic interaction. And first, you know, I want to highlight that it's something you just said that uh, people goes right by people that the Republican Party of today and the Democratic Party of today are not the same parties pre-civil uh, uh, rights, that they swap yeah. so that the Republican Party uh, of Lincoln is not the Republican Party of today. In actual fact, the Republican Party of Lincoln was if today the Democratic Party because of what happened after during the civil rights that you get this complete uh, reversal, uh, as you have suggested in this white flight uh, out of the Democratic Party because of the positions uh, and the support of yeah. civil rights. And with that, you get this, so you get a more, uh, a majority white Christian uh, party. And so how, you almost leave us hopeless in this sense, Robbie, <laughs> of how we disentangle yeah. uh, uh, whiteness from Christianity so that we can indeed, because a part of a faith tradition is to open us up to a more expansive yeah, okay. moral vision, a, a, to open our imagination for justice up. But if you have this sort of thing that is whiteness stifling that, how, what's the hope for a white Christian uh, faith tradition? Uh, yeah. I'm thinking of a church like my own that is uh, well over 95% white. What's the hope? What do we say to the next generation? How can we disentangle uh, yeah. whiteness and Christianity? Yeah, well, uh, it is going to be a generations long project. I mean, it was, this was built uh, over centuries, right? It was literally built into the DNA of, of American Christianity over centuries. So we shouldn't expect it's going to get dismantled overnight. Uh, but I, but I am seeing that this, I think the civil right, you know, reconstruction uh, provided a moment of opportunity that we did not take advantage of. The civil rights movement provided an opportunity that we did not take advantage of. And I think the moment we're in provides another moment where the question is being called, right? It is out front, it is right in front of us. Um, it's not, you can't really ignore that the question is being called. And, and the only you know, 
the only outstanding thing to be seen is what the answer is going to be by white Christian churches. I am, I am ho- hopeful though. I honestly am hopeful. I'm more hopeful than I was even when I finished writing this book last fall, I'm more hopeful now, um, even in the midst of all the um, kind of troubling things that we've seen. Um, for example, um, in my home state of Mississippi, uh, you know, the Mississippi uh, state legislature has voted to take the Confederate battle flag out of the state's flag. Um, and uh, what, I'm, what I'm most hopeful about there is that the Mississippi Baptist Convention, which is the state arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, right, founded on to support the Confederacy and slavery, called on the governor and the legislature to remove the flag before they did it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that that's something I couldn't have imagined even six months ago. Um, happening. Um, I write in the book about the monuments in Richmond uh, that have been standing for over a hundred years. They are almost all gone uh, now. The, the statues are almost all gone. Uh, the church, uh, first, first, the, the first Baptist church in, in Richmond um, that uh, offered up its its bell to be melted down for cannon to make cannons for, for the Confederacy, rang its bell in celebration of uh, the statues coming down um, uh, this this summer. Like that's real change. Um, now it has. To, we can't stop with just these symbolic efforts, but I think it's worth noting that there is a real effervescence happening right now. I think people do sense that the question is being called, that there is a responsibility, um, and that um, you know. And then the other thing, I, I I think you know, there's maybe a recognition that this is also not an altruistic project for white Christians, right? If we really take seriously how deeply embedded these assumptions of white supremacy have become in our own faith. Like we have something at stake ourselves, right. right? And kind of ridding the faith once and for all for, for you know, from this parasite um, that has really burrowed its way in. Um, and, and we've kind of made motions toward getting rid of it, but like maybe this generation will be the one that finally calls it out, right? And that puts, uh, and that hands something significantly different uh, down to our children and grandchildren. No, I, I think you're right, that this is a time rich with uh, possibilities, and uh, we have a responsibility to take advantage of that. And so, uh, yes, you know, and, and at stake, as James Baldwin once said, for uh, white Americans, your very humanity uh, right. is- Our is soul, right? That's, right. That's right. Theologically, yeah. That's right, and the soul of the nation. So- Robbie, my goodness, we could go on forever and we are over, but I wanna leave though with one question because we are at this time where of possibility and that time of possibility uh, begins at least with the vote, taking uh, part in uh, the opportunity to vote, our civic responsibility, if not our moral responsibility to just vote. And so I want to ask you for a memory. And what is your memory of the first time that you voted? Um, well, my, my parents were not that political, but they did vote. Um, and so I, I certainly remember them, uh, you know, coming home with a little I voted sticker, um, you know, for, and, and, and taking time to go to the polls um, and vote. Um, uh, I, I'll tell you my first uh, sort of, a memory of kind of any kind of political activism yeah. um, was actually before I voted um, was actually uh, stuffing envelopes for Trent Lott, um, <laughs> the re- Republican Senator from Mississippi um, yeah. you know, uh, in my early days in college. I mean, that was sort of my first. Uh, and, and again, I think it was a reflection of this kind of marriage between 
white evangelicalism and the Republican Party that had happened by the time that, that in the early 1980s um, uh, when that when that occurred. Um, and then I, I think my first uh, vote was cast for uh, uh, George H.W. Bush um, is, is the, the first vote I cast. But I think what's significant about that is that um, for the moment we're in is that I, I, I think voting uh, for a non-Republican candidate had been had been so um, was, was seen almost as like something not even to think about, like that, that Republican identity had been so, I think, merged um, with Christian identity um, for me, who kind of grew up kind of with that rise of the Christian right mm-hmm. um, era. Um, and, I, and when I think back today, I think that's one of the things that stands out is, is it wasn't really a, um, a weighing of the issues or a weighing of the candidates. It was, I'm, I'm white, I'm Christian, so I'm voting Republican, um, was kind of the assumption. Well, it's a good place to end, I think. I want to thank you, Dr. Robert P. Jones, for your honesty, your uh, provoking uh, and inspiring uh, dialogue and work. And I most especially want to thank you for and to recommend to all who are listening. If you don't have it, it is an absolute must read. And that is the book, White Too Long, uh, The End of White Christian, uh, uh, who in Robbie is also the author of The End of White Christian America. But I recommend to you today, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Uh, he's only touched on a little bit of what's in that book. Uh, and it should indeed entice you into reading more because we learn a lot about who we are as a country, even as we learn a lot about the Christian faith tradition. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for sharing your time, sharing your wisdom, sharing your work, and thank you most of all for your witness. Um, Thanks, Kelly, and thanks for all for your leadership and your witness as well. Always glad to talk to you.